I really get excited to make these dishes and create things. It's really a passion that I would probably just do anyway. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. My foodie friends, you are going to love today's episode with cookbook author Nisha Melvani. Her book, Practically Vegan, is for everyone, even if you're not vegan. It's a wonderful way to incorporate more plant-based meals into your repertoire. And she also has the beloved handle Cooking for Peanuts on Instagram, which has over half a million followers. And after speaking to her, I understand why she is so beloved and adored. She is authentic and her food speaks for itself. So before we dive into this incredible conversation, I just wanted to thank you because you have been so supportive of my new book, Come Home to Your Heart. You have been sharing pictures with me and posting pictures with you in the book. You've been sending me messages about the book and telling your friends about the book. And I just feel so loved and so grateful for your support and I just wanted to say thanks. So let's dive into today's conversation with Nisha Melvani. Welcome, Nisha. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And so tell listeners just where you are in the world and kind of what your, your current life looks like right now. So I'm in New York City downtown Manhattan and I have three girls that I live with my daughters who are teenagers so I have a college age one who's home for the day and two high schools and I live with my husband Anand and we actually have very similar backgrounds it's interesting in that we are both born in the developing world he was born in India I was born in Jamaica and we both went to boarding school in England when we were seven, which isn't very typical. Wow. And we um, ended up meeting in New York City. So we've been here together 22 years. Oh, wow. I have so many questions just about the different places you've lived in Jamaica and England and Canada and New York City. So kind of walk us through um, how that was and why that was and the impact that those different places had on you and food. So I was born in Jamaica, as I said, and the reason I was, you know, ended up there is because my mom was born there of Indian parents who had migrated there. And my father was born in India. He lived there for most of his life. And well, now it would be Jamaica most of his life. And he came to Jamaica in his early 20s to work. There's actually a large Indian population in Jamaica who have done this. And 
they met there when he had a car accident because my mom's family looked after him because he was quite injured. Oh, wow. And um, they had me there. So, you know, both are of Indian heritage. I'm of Indian heritage, but really raised in Jamaica for most of my life. So I feel very in tune with that culture. And Mm -hmm. the reason I ended up in England was because I was a very naughty child. Um, (laughs) And they had no idea what to do with me, how to discipline me. And so they ended up deciding to send me to boarding school in England, which was very strict at the age of seven. Wow. So someone else could deal with it. (laughs) And so I was there for, you know, many years. And then I decided to go to university in Canada by default, actually, because I had decided to take a gap year after finishing my A-levels in England. And so I went back to Jamaica, but I never told my parents I was taking a gap year. And when I arrived, they said, no, this is not a good idea. So Mm -hmm. we need to find you a college for January. And McGill in Montreal was the only school I could find that would take anyone in January. Never been to Montreal, never been to Canada. And, you know, used to warm weather and I arrive in January and my eyelashes freeze. But, you know, aside from that, I loved it. I had an amazing experience in Montreal. Like is the food is incredible. Mm. Oh, wow. So tell us about the food influences in each place, Jamaica and England and Canada. What? dishes really stuck out to you from each place when you think of those places you think of those dishes I would say um, food is very grounding to me because my parents worked six days a week and a lot of hours but we did have dinner together and though I often didn't want to eat the food and was you know messing around it was that time where I saw my parents and so I think that's probably if I were to look back why I've centered my life around food. And in, you know, in those days, they made a lot of curries because that was sort of familiar in, in Indian culture and Jamaican. So the overlap is generally with curries. And so they would make, you know, curried goat, which I never liked and try and force <laughs> me to eat it. And then I gravitated to sort of the Jamaican unhealthy food when I was very little, like, you know, the Johnny cakes they're called, which are fried dumplings. So good. I loved fried plantains, um, rice and peas, which is not unhealthy, but I loved rice and peas and stew peas, all the like beanie things, bean dishes, the fried dishes, the carby dishes. I wasn't a curry fan then because it was like enforced on me, but I eventually became a big curry fan. And, um, you know, it was interesting because I had a dad who loved fresh produce, loved bananas and you know, mangoes and all the tropical fruit and the Indian vegetables, the bindis, all the things, you know, that my mom didn't like. My mom, on the other hand, just really liked spam a lot and processed foods. (laughs) And so, you know, bacon, it was interesting. And so I think what it taught me is that you have to be open to everyone's choices they make and not like, you know, judge that because, Food means so many different things to so many people and they get comfort from it. 
Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking about all of those influences, but I love what you said about how you think the reason why food played such a role was because that was the time of the day when you would all gather together at dinner and you'd be able to see your parents. So I do think there's something inherent about food that is a, a connector and a bond. So you are going to these different places and I'm so curious about when you yourself started cooking and what were the first dishes that you began to cook? So I have a very vivid memory of me starting to cook at around age seven, six or seven, um, because it fascinated me, the whole chemistry of food. I'm actually a chemistry major. I love chemistry. So I guess that stayed with me. And one of the first things I ever made was pizza crust <laughs> because I just was so obsessed with the fact you could take that like powder and turn it into, you know, a hard crust as a child. That's pretty fascinating. And I was just determined that I would be able to do that. And so I made a lot of pizza crusts, I remember. And I also would mimic like try to make some of the dishes I would have at our aunt's houses. Like when we would go around the neighborhood to different families and eat there, I tried to mimic some of the things I enjoyed there because in my house, my mom didn't cook. She was definitely a working out of the house mom. And so, you know, our food definitely wasn't as varied as some others. And we also did have a lot of canned food, uh, Chef Boyardee's. We did also have fresh food, but it was definitely more on the Jamaican side. And so when we would go somewhere else and have like a volivant, I was like, whoa, what's that? <laughs> and, you know, tried to make it not successfully at that age. But I remember just having a very um, explorative nature. Oh, my gosh, I love this. And so you know, you're young, you're trying out these different dishes, and you said that you'd studied chemistry, you eventually became, if I am remembering this right, a dietitian or nutritionist. And so what led you down that path? I always was fascinated with health, and how food and health are connected, which they are so connected. And I was actually a second grade teacher for a year after being an investment banker for a year. <laughs> So I was trying to figure out what my path in life was, clearly. And when I was teaching, I was looking into doing a teaching degree and maybe going into public school system. And then I saw there was a nutrition education degree. And I was like, oh, wait, that's so much more up my alley. And I explored it further and ended up doing the full course and getting certified as a registered dietitian after that in at Columbia in New York. So as you're going down this path, you know, you're seeing the link between food and health. In your own life, what were you noticing about how food impacts your health and how different foods would have different effects on you? So I, it was sort of the era when we were told that we should not eat fat and carbs were good. I don't know if you remember. Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I remember like sort of falling down. I eat a lot of sandwiches, but I would get like a lag 
at some point in the day where I was just exhausted and I felt like something wasn't right, you know? It wasn't that I was eating such low fat, but I definitely probably didn't have the correct balance because you kind of listen to what's going on around you um, in terms of what you should be eating, you know, when you're that young and you don't know better. And then, right. you know, in school, the big focus really, as I studied nutrition was on balancing, you know, your macronutrients, your carbs, proteins, and heart healthy fats. What they didn't really talk about, which was interesting, was you know, meat versus vegan, it wasn't really a big thing back then, or vegetarian, some vegetarian, you know, vegetarian was definitely a thing, but they didn't really talk about whether meat was really, um, what were the benefits or the downfalls of eating it, it sort of was just everything was classified more on a macronutrient basis. And so I, though, started more to think about, you know, to break it down, like the proteins, which ones do I feel better eating? you know, and I found I did better eating less meat. And eventually I just did no meat and incorporating more lentils and beans and heart healthy fats into my diet, which I hadn't really thought about before. And what did you notice when you would incorporate those healthy fats, when you would reduce the meat intake? What were you noticing physically in your body and then emotionally? I noticed that I had a lot more energy and just felt more vital, I guess. Mm. And the pregnancies really were not hard for me. You know, I had three kids in three and a half years. And oh, wow. Thank goodness. Each, you know, pregnancy went well and the deliveries went well, all natural. And I felt like strong. Yeah. And just able to deliver, you know, more easily. I also, you know, was like building furniture till the end, which I know is a story of a lot of pregnant people. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely, I just, I think I didn't really need, you know, as many naps and I just had more stamina and felt lighter and just more complete. Mm. Yeah, I think that food journeys are really interesting and can be very complicated, especially for women. And I don't know if you know that we have this in common, but I was a nutrition major in college and it came from the similar uh, like low fat, no fat landscape where when I was growing up, especially uh, like junior high, high school time, my mom switched from being uh, working at a bank to becoming a fitness instructor and personal trainer. And so there was a, an emphasis on health and food, but we were kind of consumed by what the media was putting out, which was that fat was bad. And so everything in our fridge was low fat or no fat. I remember the yogurts. It's like you take something yeah. that inherently has fat in it and then it's like no fat, but then yeah. it's loaded with sugar. And we weren't even, you know, we weren't looking at that. And then eventually it was, well, you know, sugar is bad, but let's replace it with sugar substitutes like equal or something like right. that. Right. And I remember eating like a low fat, low sugar ice cream out of the carton as a teenager and just 
immediately having a stomach ache. One, because I didn't realize I was lactose intolerant oh, at gosh. that point. <laughs> but two, it's like all of the substitutes and every all of the fillers that they were using to take out what is just naturally in ice cream right. was was upsetting my stomach so much. And so And probably knew, the sugar alcohols that they used to sweeten it, which is makes yes. people's stomach really hurt. Yes, yes, exactly. And so eventually I had this, I don't know, preoccupation with just wanting to have health as a pillar in my life. And so when I went to the University of Illinois, I started off as a nutrition major, but I did so poorly in chemistry that I almost flunked out. So I switched to English. But Gosh, I wish I, I'd had you to do my writing and I would have <laughs> And you could do my chemistry. Yes, because writing was hard for me. <laughs> and, but I, it comes from the same vein of just realizing that what we put into our bodies does have a major, major impact on our health, on our mood, on our physical well-being. So as we then think about, okay, you're, you're realizing what you put into your body and you're eating less meat and then eventually no meat, what I liked about your cookbook is that as someone who still does eat meat but is trying to integrate more of a plant-based diet while still eating meat, I at least felt not shamed, you know, like I, I know there are plenty of reasons against meat and I'm, you know, slowly trying to transition a bit to eating less and less and, and replacing more with veg. And, um, I, at least though, when I picked up your book, didn't feel like I am a bad person because I haven't fully made that transition. So I love that one of the things you talk about is that one way to go about this is to just choose one meal out of a day and incorporate more plants rather than have it be meat protein focused. So can you talk a bit more about why that approach and, and how it feels accessible to people. So the reason this um, cookbook came about actually is because I happen to know Jonathan Safran Foer. Our kids um, actually know each other, which is how I'd met him. And he said, you know, if, if you write a cookbook, because I had my Instagram then, but it was more of a hobby or just trying to help people on Instagram. I didn't, you know, I never thought about writing a book. And he said, if you write a book, I'll write the foreword. I was like, gosh, how do I like turn that down? You know, <laughs> yeah, I need to make this happen. <laughs> and so, you know, Jonathan had just written, we are the weather. Mm -hmm. And the premise of that was also like, if we can even eat one vegan meal a day, that's such a great, huge help for climate change, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he also has that approach because he's not perfect he eats meat sometimes right yeah so um i kind of was like you know we we saw that similarly like we're really here to just help people to eat more plants we're not here to say you can't eat what you want to eat you know mm -hmm. so that's you know how the book sort of started and that's why i called it practically vegan which has confused so many people <laughs> but uh, you know, is your book vegan or not? So yes, all the recipes are vegan, 
but it's practical and all the ingredients get used over and over again throughout the book. So you're not wasting anything, which is also practical. And you don't need to be vegan. You can just be trying to eat more plant-based foods, which is why it's for people who are practically or not practically vegan, you know? Um, so yes. that's sort of how it was born. And definitely, I really focus to this day, even in my you know Instagram on making it very accessible for people. And it really is sort of natural for me, because even though I went to culinary school, I really don't make any of the difficult things I learned from culinary school. I just remember some of the sort of tricks and tips, but I, I focus on easier recipes because that's all I have time for in my day. So how can I expect anyone else to do something more complicated? And there are a lot of other accounts that do the more complicated stuff. And so when someone's in the mood for that, they can go there, you know, but my thing is more your day-to-day, -day, how to make this accessible, easy, and budget-friendly for people. Yes, that's what I really like is the practicality that you're talking about that, okay, let's not use 75 ingredients, let's make this practical for people who have busy lives, let's also not waste food, let's um, think about budget as well, and then let's think about how people eat, not everyone is yet strictly vegan and not everyone can or will make the total shift, but how to make it practical so that a meal a day can be more vegan focused. So I really did appreciate the practicality of it. And I want to talk in a minute about the writing of the book, but you just kind of slipped in there how you went to culinary school. <laughs> so walk us through that transition, like you studied nutrition and dietetics, and then from there, what, and when did you end up in culinary school? So I finished my degree, I think when I had my second child, and I didn't work for a long time because I really wanted to um, be with them. I probably because my mom wasn't around, you know, um, mm. and so I was fortunate that I could make that choice and stay with them. But I still always practiced cooking and nutrition in my own life and feeding them. So it was never like dormant, you know, and I continued to read, you know, scientific articles and evidence based studies about, you know, what's going on in the nutrition world. And then I had always wanted to go to culinary school, but with young kids, it really wasn't possible because it is full time. And so um, I guess maybe eight years ago, gosh, time flies. I felt it was a, I had the window to go and my husband could help, you know, taking them to school with taking them to school. So I had this window and I, it's a, it was a six month full-time degree at the Natural Gourmet Institute, which was in Chelsea mm. in Manhattan. And it was, vegetarian vegan cooking school mainly and I think I didn't have a lot of confidence at that point that I really knew what I was doing mm -hmm. and so going there really helped boost that because I was able to win all the you know competitions where they would give you ingredients and say just create something because that's my passion mm. so seeing being with others and finding myself able to do that just helped me be a lot more confident and decide, you know, this really is the career for me. Mm. And they would make fun of me a lot because I don't really cook with salt. I always have it in my recipes because I know the majority of the world probably does. 
but I really rely on seasonings and my flavor is from, you know, aromatics and using different cooking with different herbs, fresh herbs or dried herbs and seasonings. And so um, they would make fun of me that, oh, Nisha, you need to add salt. Or you're going to fail. You're going to not win this. You're not going to win this, this competition. <laughs> so I would like have one friend add the salt to taste. You know, can you just tell me, is this good? Is this good? <laughs> but I, I really think we don't need as much salt as people think. That's a big thing for me. You know, we can build in flavor in many other ways. Mm. Yeah, I'm just imagining you on an episode of Chopped where they give you the basket with you know, the random food items, and then they say, go, I'm sure you would do really well on that show. <laughs> I would love it. I would. <laughs> yeah. And when I watch it with my husband, I'm always like, you know, you should really put your hat in the ring for that. And he's like, while that would be terrifying for him, because while he can look in our fridge and just whip up anything based on whatever leftovers we have and ingredients we have he he said that he would probably spend whatever 20 minutes they give you just thinking about all the different possibilities yeah. <laughs> so it would be too hard but i'm inspired that you did this at a time where, you know, often we think about people going to culinary school when they're in their early 20s or something like that. And I think it's refreshing for the listeners to remember that we can try something different at any stage. This was late. I was in my late 30s. Right, right. And there's kind of this idea that, you know, once we're we have a family that we're kind of like stuck in whatever career we've chosen or whatever path we've chosen. So I think it's really inspiring that you did this program, especially just feeling like, oh my gosh, how is it going to go? And the more confidence you build, is that then where Cooking for Peanuts, which eventually became really, really popular. Is that where that started? Tell us a little bit more about cooking for peanuts. So I had actually started that before I went to culinary school on Instagram. It was the only, you know, social media I had. And when I joined it, I made the conscious decision that I would only follow other people who did exactly what I was doing. I wasn't going to follow any family, any friends or anything. I didn't want it to become you know, a social thing, mm. ironically. So um, I was very strict about that because I didn't want to spend my life on my phone and I wanted it to really just be a business. So I always had that mindset and my kids don't have social media from by their choice. My college student probably does now, but, you know, mm. it took that many years. And so I just didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. But then it was overwhelming for me so I guess I started about eight, nine years ago or eight, maybe eight years ago. And then it was overwhelming for me. So I left it. I still had my account, but I left it and took, you know, a year and a half off and went and did culinary school and other stuff and then came back to it. But the name was already there. It was originally called My Favorite Edibles because I didn't know what edibles were. <laughs> <laughs> And then someone had to tell me, <laughs> you know, so I changed the name <laughs> cooking for peanuts. 
I have no marketing experience, but I just felt like I came up with that name one night and I just felt like people would remember it, you know, and I was cooking for kids, cooking for no money at the time. And I love peanuts, but my recipes rarely have peanuts. So it's not really to do with that. Yeah. I I do love the name. It just, it sticks. As soon as I heard it the first time, it stuck. And, and yeah, I got both that it could mean cooking for little kids or cooking for a little money. And, and so it's really attention grabbing. And so to be someone who kind of can feel at times like overwhelmed by social media, but then you developed a really large following. <laughs> How did that happen? You know, I, I think luck is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. People say that they found they could relate to me that I seem to be, you know, genuine on there. Mm-hmm. I would say that's definitely true because I don't really know how to be otherwise, you know? Yeah. So maybe it's, you know, being relatable. And also I think having the easy accessible recipes. And at that time, the competition wasn't like what it is now. I think, you know, since COVID and with such even though I have a nutrition degree, I went to culinary school. So many people can really enter into the social media doing what I do if they know how to cook and have an iPhone. There's so many of us now that I definitely feel it's a lot harder to stand out. Mm. So that, you know, I'm thinking about, but I just stay true to myself and you just need to keep being creative really, Um, which is not hard. It's not like hard for me because I, you know, I feel I am creative, but Sometimes I have so many thoughts, probably like your husband, and then they kind of like just keep going and and I can't like pull them out and just get it done, you know? (laughs) So I think, you know, you can overthink, but I'm trying to just be, you know, I take every day at a time and I just, you know, I still do focus on spending time with my kids too. So while this is my business, I still want to be around while until they go to college. Yeah. And I think when people go on your page, I think immediately what they'll see is a feast for the eyes. I mean, I look at the dishes that you put on there and I just immediately, one, feel hungry, but, (laughs) but two, it's just, I can feel all of my senses igniting, even though I'm just looking, I can imagine how it smells and tastes and the colors are beautiful. So cooking for peanuts became popular. And had you ever intended to write a cookbook before Jonathan kind of gave that nudge? No, it just seemed like way too much work, which it was. (laughs) (laughs) No, I never, you know, I, I never really thought of this as a business in the beginning. Yeah. And I still like half do it is like my what I do for a living. But I really love it. I really get excited to make these dishes and create things. It's really a passion that I would probably just do anyway. So why not, you know, but I don't love the social media part around it. It's still just hard for me, but I have made some really great friends on there. Like I went to Mexico this year in January Mm -hmm. with maybe eight other people. Um, Someone had organized for a bloggers retreat And I met people that I really only knew online. Wow. It was really wonderful. I had 
the best time I had. And I was probably 10 years older than everyone, except one person who was my age, um, wow. who was a doctor and great and so fun. Everyone was so smart, so fun. It was a beautiful experience. So it's really helped me to grow. So while social media has this negative connotation to it, which I get, I would never have made these friends. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as you were talking to Jonathan and he gave that nudge, walk us through the actual process of writing the book and finding a publisher and testing the recipes. How long did it take? What was it like? Give us all the goods. So Jonathan left me alone for all of that. And <laughs> I happened to um, be introduced to a someone who was very high up in a pub publishing house whose kids also go to school with my kids. So I reached out to him to see um, if he thought I should even pursue this. And we had a meeting. He was very nice. And he said that I absolutely should, you know, write a proposal and referred me to an agent who he knew, who does a lot of cookbooks. Alison Fargus was amazing. I, I remember I was going to India that day and I emailed her and was like, you know, do you want to help me with this? And she emailed right back and said, yes. And it was so exciting. I, you know, I didn't really expect to hear that. And mm -hmm. she, you know, just helped, you know, solidify the deal when COVID started actually was when it was all like going forward. And she got me the contract right at the start of COVID with uh, Rodell Penguin Random House. Which is a dream. <laughs> yeah. And they were really, they were great to work with. Yeah. It doesn't normally happen like this. So, <laughs> so okay, see, I have no idea. I felt yeah. very blessed. So. Yes. Yeah. Listeners are going to be going, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it just feels very serendipitous, very organic as well. And so once the contract was in place, then the rubber meets the road. How did you even figure out how to structure it, what recipes to put in it and testing the recipes? So it was in COVID. And what happened is there were a bunch of people I knew who wanted to learn to cook during COVID, vegan. And so I started a cooking class for them all and I had them test the recipes in it and make them. So that was great for me to see if they worked for people who were also beginners in this area of cooking. Mm -hmm. um, and that was um, sort of built in testing. And I also had other friends help with it. And then, you know, it was hard because my kids were home, mm -hmm. you know, they were doing Zoom school for most of that time. So I was making them lunch and dinner and breakfast and doing this cookbook. And, you know, it was a little overwhelming at times. And I don't feel like they or my husband really looked at it as my job, you know, mm -hmm. because I was just like the mom who was at home and expected to sort of do what I was already doing, you know? Yeah. And my, and my husband was really busy. So it was really quite hard. But you know, there were just times where I found just space and where they, I just let them be and figure it out for themselves. And, you know, he could help. And then I just would find pockets of time where I felt inspired and would get like a bunch of things done. And then 
I would sort of feel like I needed a break again. So it sort of went like that. Yeah. I call it batching, right? Where you yes, just try to do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. The batch and then the break and then the batch and then the break. Is that typical you feel for, for writers? Oh, you know, I find that I have both seasons. There are some times when I'm able to focus on a writing project or work stuff kind of consistently, but then there are other seasons, especially summer when our son is home or oh gosh, during COVID when we were all home together right. where it was just like, if I could steal like a six hour chunk of a day, I would just go to town and just yeah. try to do all the things I could within that hour because time, especially then when everyone was home was so precious. So for me, I find it a relief for people to talk about that because I feel, especially for writers, it's been drilled in our heads that if, you, if you're if you a real writer, you write every day or you write five times a week or something. Yeah. And that actually isn't always the case for me and I've written two books at this point and, and, and many essays and it's, it doesn't always look like that. A lot of times there has to be just chunks of batching here and there. And so my goodness, like what a time to have to be writing this cookbook during COVID when there's already so much going on, what helped you finish it and get it through and make it the good product that it is? Thank you. Um, I guess what, I have going for me is that what I make is my dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's <a> reward. <laughs> yeah. That has been like super helpful. First, you know, I that's why I don't do desserts, honestly. <laughs> because it would just be a time kill for me. I need to be able to serve this to my family. And so it sort of really is was a practical process too. Mm. You know, you're killing two birds with one stone. So nothing ever went wasted. And I knew that in that process, I was also just would have dinner on the table by the end of the day. And I wasn't doing the photos. So I, you know, literally was just testing the recipes and then a photographer, I hired an amazing photographer who did the photo, you know, so I think that helped a lot. And that is what I've been so curious about. I follow an author named Jen Hatmaker, and she put a cookbook out um, maybe last year or a few months ago. It's called Feed These People because <laughs> she has five kids. And um, she, on one of her podcast episodes, talked about the just the behind the scenes of how a cookbook is made and about these people who would come in, she had like a team of people and one was the food photographer and would have to like, would spend hours and hours just making a dish look really good. And then another person was choosing the plates in the background that the food would be laid out on. So what was it like for you when you hired the photographer? Did they come for a few days or over the course of months? What did that process look like? So I worked with Dana Gallagher and she was based in Brooklyn in a townhouse. Mm. So we just carved out like 10 days mm. and had a food stylist who was incredible. And so it was the three of us in her house, in her studio for 10 days together, something like that, just banging out these recipes. Yeah. She had an assistant and the thing is that um, I was originally supposed to have a different food stylist whose dad passed away right before we were supposed to do the shoot. 
Mm. And then actually Dana's dad passed away. Also, it was just crazy. It was like, she amazed me. She had so much strength to get through the process, you know, and because of COVID, we really just it needed to be done there and then, you know, we just didn't know what the regulations were going to be, what they had, they're going to change, but everyone had masks. And as someone who was cooking the food, the food <laughs> also cooks the food. It was so hot for her with the mask and all the like heat from the stove. And I felt so bad, but um, they just did such a great job and it just went actually really smoothly. And it was great that it, you know, was away from my kids. So I was literally, they knew mom is just not here. So we need to do stuff for ourselves, which they're very capable when they, you know, have to. <laughs> By necessity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's another one of those batching moments. It's like, okay, we've got 10 days. We have to photograph every dish and let's go at it. And and for the food stylist, I mean, what a job to have. What what a fun but also hard job. So your food stylist cook your recipes and then makes it look good, or what was yes. what was your job? Yes, she had an assistant and they cooked the recipes like, you know, several in a day and styled it, made it look good. I mean, it's like you have to be a workhorse to get that done with a mask. (laughs) Oh, gosh. And so when the book came out, what was it like to launch in a time of like still somewhat pandemic? going on what what was the book launch time like you know I feel the one thing that I wish was different was the book comes out so much later than when you have the idea for the book you know it's like a two-year process right and I feel like fortunately I think these recipes are not like trendy they're really like will last forever they're kind of forever recipes but your excitement for that particular style kind of wanes a little, or you I even forgot what was in the book, you know, because it's yeah. such a long process. So I wish it could be shorter. And I feel like when it actually finally ended up coming out, I almost was a bit disassociated from it because I think COVID had sort of taken some, what of a toll, you know, and just being more involved in like your kids, their mental health, trying to like, get things back on track I almost feel part of me dissociated and I didn't even really realize oh this is my book it was weird I can't really explain it no I get it I find that it's almost a necessary part too when the book goes out in the world to detach a little bit it's like uh I mean different but somewhat similar to a parent sending their kid off to college it's kind of like okay you're on your own now (laughs) and it's especially I coach a lot of women who write memoir and by the time that book goes out into the world it's no longer like their bleeding heart on a page but more of a crafted polished thing and they have to detach and let it go out and be what it'll be. Um, But I do think too, as you talked about adding the layer of COVID times onto it, that's equally difficult. But what did you find was a highlight or reward or celebration of something that happened as a result of the book being out? You know, I feel like my kids didn't take my career for that seriously. And we were walking in Soho and we went into one of the major bookstores, independent bookstores, and 
my book was there oh. and they kind of just it was this moment where they kind of acknowledged that wow she made that you know yeah <laughs> and I could see like they were kind of proud of me and that was like a nice feeling you know isn't it incredible yeah they just see us as mom so to be able to see you Oh, and the book was next to Anthony Bourdain's. Oh so my excited. gosh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that did it for me. I was like, oh, that was yeah. the moment I... <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, you should feel so proud. And tell us what you are doing these days. So today I posted a reel on how to make your own chili crisp in the microwave in seven minutes. Oh, which, I love a good chili crisp. Yes, it, it turned out so, you know, so good. And it's just, I add it to everything. It's delicious. So I guess I'm in sort of an exploratory phase where I'm, I feel like solving problems with how I cook. You know, I'm thinking, oh, cauliflower doesn't have protein. Can mm. I fix that? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, as it's so often a main and just creating videos, working with brands uh, to promote them and yeah, still feeding two kids at home and a husband. So yes, <laughs> in the midst. And now it's funny. My daughter's here for a couple of days and she's like, mom, can you just like make batches of stuff, meal prep it and freeze it so I can take it back. And I never thought I would hear that from my child. <laughs> Wow. You know, you just don't think your kid likes your, you know, food enough to want to have it in college. <laughs> I truly feel that that's when they realize that however they grew up, if if they have a chef at home is not the norm. Uh, because Gio, our son, you know, every night we sit down for a home cooked meal, typically by my husband, and it's always something really beautiful and delicious. And you know, Gio will do an eye roll like, oh, are we having salmon again? <laughs> <laughs> with these like beautiful vegetables with all these herbs on the side. And, and I'm, we're always like, buddy, you have no idea how good you have it. Like, wait till yeah. you go to college and you don't have this. <laughs> Maybe he'll delight in it for a couple months. Like, oh, I can eat all this cereal and processed foods that I never got to eat. <laughs> That's what she was like in the beginning. And then she actually got some acne. Oh. I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, she realized for herself, you know, the impact of the food on yeah. us. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm sure everyone who's listening is going to go and check out your beautiful recipes on your page and uh, let everyone know where they can find you. Sure. So I'm on Instagram. My handle is at Cooking for Peanuts. I'm also on TikTok and I have a blog where you can print recipes and that's cookingforpeanuts.com. And my cookbook is in you know, most major bookstores or anywhere you can buy books. And if they don't have it in your independent bookstore, you can ask them to get it and they're usually willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's called Practically Vegan. Nisha, thank you so, so much for coming on today. I want to go attempt to cook something right this minute. <laughs> oh, thank you, Nadine. You know, your your little one might really like the tofu bolognese. Ooh. Well, I, I made bolognese. it for, for kids and not told them it was tofu and they thought it was meat. Oh, I love a good trick. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, when we can ever <laughs> slide something in and he has no idea, I'm all exactly. for it. <laughs> and you can just say, it's not salmon again. <laughs> right. Selling point. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh, uh, thank you so much. This was absolutely delightful. Thank you, Nadine. It was so nice to be here. Oh, doesn't that make you just want to cook something and eat something really nourishing and beautiful and sensory rich and comforting? I just want to go cook something right now. If you would like to check out Nisha's book, it's called Practically Vegan. And if you're interested in my book as well, it's called Come Home to Your Heart. So I'll put the link to both books in the show notes. And if you loved something about this conversation, let us know. You can take a screenshot and tag both of us. Nisha's at Cooking for Peanuts. I'm at Needing Kenny Johnstone. And let us know your favorite takeaways from this conversation. Thank you, Michelle Rado, for being an incredible producer. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week.